0: For our eyes, And He brought us out from thence that He might bring us in to give us the land which He sware unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as it is this at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He hath commanded us. Uh, So let's pray together. Father, we love You this morning. Thank You for letting us be in the house of God. Now, I pray that You'd take and consecrate these next few moments. Lord, may they be devoted wholly to Your glory and to Your will and to Your working and to Your Word in this place. Lord, may we not make it about us. May we not draw the focus upon ourselves, but may we, Lord, instead have our entire focus on the truth of the Word of God and what you would seek to say to us today, Lord, that we might respond in obedience and that your will might be exercised in our life. Lord, thank you for what you've been doing. Thank you for what you will do. And may Christ be magnified in everything that's said and done today. Lord, we ask all these things in that precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to think with me for a few moments about the setting of our text this morning. God foretold a day when the sons and daughters of the Israelites would ask their parents about three different aspects of their faith. Let me just say this, it is the duty of every parent to be able to give a a, a rational, biblical, and comprehensible answer to their kids about why we believe what we believe. Uh, it is your duty as a father and your duty as a mother even to teach your children what is right, but not only that, to teach them why it is right. I think that we've done a great disservice to our young people by not allowing them to explore and sound the depths of what we believe. And, and there's been, and there's times, listen, I'm a parent, there's times I ain't got no energy for anything other than because I told you so, all right? So I understand, but let me say there's a danger in that too because you'll raise them to believe that the only reason they ought to believe that is because you told them so. Instead, it ought to be because thus saith the Lord. That's why we believe what we believe. And so uh, God said there's going to come a day that your sons and daughters are going to look up at you and they're going to think about how you're living, the rules that you have in your home, the things that you expect, the things that you do and the things that you uh, prohibit in your home. And they're going to ask you what all of these things mean. And he points to three different things that these young people would ask about. Let me say number one, they would ask in verse 20 about the testimonies. Now what does it mean when it says the testimonies? As I said a moment ago, all of these words, testimonies and statutes and judgments, all of these are uh, referring to the Word of God, but they refer to different aspects about the Word of God. And when it speaks about the testimonies, what is a testimony? A testimony is a story of something that you are avowing to be true. Whenever a person gives their testimony, they're saying, hey, let me tell you what happened to me one day. Let me tell you when God saved my soul and how He saved my soul and what that meant to my life and how it's changed it. In other words, a testimony is an accurate history of a thing. And let me say this, that oftentimes our young people, they're going to ask us about the things that we believe and know to be true. Can I tell you the Word of God is the source, the ultimate source of truth. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that is true is found in the Word of God, but what it does mean is this, that the truth of the Word of God is of a purer and more substantive quality than any other source of truth in the rest of the world. Hey, listen, I've got a source of drinking water at my house. Not all the water in the world is in that drinking source, but I know that that drinking source is pure and is true. Can I tell you, there are things the Word of God does not speak on, but there's nothing that the Word of God speaks on that any other source speaks truer on it. It is the source. of truth. It is impeccable, inerrant, inspired, hey, and preserved this morning so that we can hold it in our hands and say this is not just the Word of God, but the very words of God exactly as God expects them to be. And there would come a day, he said, where they're going to ask you, why do you believe these things are true? And then there's a second thing they would ask. They would ask about the statutes. Now, the term statutes is in many ways similar. To the word laws. And the Old Testament Scripture uh, was comprised of 600 and some odd laws. Some of them were uh, prohibitive and some of them were instructive. But when it talks about statutes, it's talking about the things that are right. Can I tell you, hey, listen, we better be ready to give our kids an answer for what's true. But we also better be ready to give our kids an answer for what is right as well. Uh, we ought not expect our kids to stumble through life and have to figure it out through painful experience and heartache and battle scars. We ought to teach them what is right. Not just tell them all the time what's wrong, but teach them what is right in their life. You ought to lead by example and you ought to lead by explanation and exhortation as well. And they would ask one day, why do we believe these things are right? Can I tell you, we ought to have an answer. Why is it right to go to church? It isn't just right to go to church because it's wrong to not go to church. There are some folks that's why they think it's right to go to churches, because they think it's wrong not to go to church. Uh, I would say this, that it's wrong not to go to church because it is right to go to church. Uh, Why do we go to church? Because we need church, amen? It's right to read the Word of God. It's right to pray. It's right to witness. These are not just things that we do because we have no other alternative. We do them because they're the best thing. They're the right thing for our lives. So there'd come a day that they would ask, now why do we believe these things are true? Why do we believe these things are right? But then he says this, the judgments which the Lord our God commanded you. Now, judgment is an assessment of something. But if the statutes are speaking of that which is right, I would say this, that the judgments are speaking of that which is wrong. Judgment was given when something was wrong and had to be addressed and had to be dealt with. And let me say, we ought to be able to give an answer for why we believe certain things are wrong and are harmful to our young people. We're living in a world today where everything is assumed to be harmless, and yet we have never lived in a more harm-filled world than the world we live in today. I can't tell you how many times I hear Christians say, well, what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it? Now, let me say this. This is not a comprehensive answer, but I would like to ask you what's right with it. Why are we only satisfied and contented to fill our life with things that are barely okay? Why do we not want to fill our life with the things that glorify God, that magnify Christ, that point our young people towards the cross of Calvary? Uh, what a low stand and what a low thought you have of your home and your kids and your family if you just want to give them what's barely okay. Uh, we've been growing a garden, at least we were, uh, at our house. If it rains, we might start doing it again. I don't know. But uh, we we grow a garden for a few different reasons, and we're not we're not preppers because uh, we're too lazy to be. Um, but but we like to grow our, our our garden food, and there's really one main reason. Let me tell you something. You're looking into getting into gardening. Uh, one, let me tell you, you don't have time to. Just point blank, nobody has time to. I don't have time to. But we put stuff out. But people say, well, I'm gonna grow my garden. I'm gonna save money. No, you ain't. You ain't gonna save money. No, between no, between the miracle grow and the seven dust and the fence and the posts and the nets and the tools, and you ain't gonna save money. And you say, well, well, preacher, you don't understand. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save money. I'm gonna prep. I'm gonna lay up in store. No, you ain't, because you'll die before you'll eat nothing but canned green beans for the rest of your life. (laughs) I'm just telling you true this morning. But there is one reason that we do grow a garden. We like to know where our food's coming from. I just, I know, I know it ain't rode from Juarez on a truck for six days, sprayed down with stuff, try to keep it looking like it's still alive. I, I know where it's come from. And because of that, let me say this, we're trying to feed our kids on stuff that we know is good for them. We're not just trying to feed them on stuff that we hope don't kill them. Yeah. We're trying to feed them on what we believe is good for them. Now, why can't we do that spiritually? Uh, you say, well, preacher, it won't kill them. No, but it might just come near to it. I, it might wreck them. It might destroy them. You ought to be able to give an answer as to why things that are wrong are wrong. Don't just look at your kids and say, well, because I said so. And By the way, we have this same duty and responsibility to a world around us. That's why we ought to be biblically well-versed people best as we can be. Nobody has to be a Bible scholar, but hey, we can all be Bible students. Uh, And we ought to know best as we can what the Word of God teaches. Well, these questions would arise one day. And the answer that is given begins down in verse number 21. And this is the answer that, that fascinates me this morning. He says in verse 21, Then thou shalt say unto thy son. So this is God's answer. He says, this is what you need to tell him. Tell him three things. One, we were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. That's where we used to be. Two, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and upon all his household before our eyes. And then three, and he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. I want to preach to you this morning on this thought that he might bring us in. Say, preacher, why did he save me? Why did he bring me out? He brought you out. So that He could bring you in. He didn't just bring you out so you'd die in the wilderness. He didn't just bring you out to change your zip code from Egypt to Sinai. He brought you out so that He could bring you into a victorious life where Christ gets glory and where He is pleased with the way we are living. One of the great tragedies, and I I don't believe this is the case in our church. I hope it's not. I pray it is not, and I trust that it is not. But one of the great criminal things that occurs in child evangelism, and and we we have uh, various things we do around here to try to reach kids with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, And if that bothers you, I'm sorry. We may not be for you. I believe in reaching kids with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not scared of doing that. I believe it's appropriate. I believe it's accurate. I I believe it is biblical. I believe we ought to suffer little children to come unto Him. I I think we ought to, like what dr robertson used to you can't reach a tall one reach a small one hey some of you wish you got saved at a vacation bible school instead of laying in a gutter somewhere i'd a lot rather get them when they're at the father's house and wait until they're in the pig pen and, and, and but one of the great criminal things that is done obviously in, in child evangelism sometimes there's this mentality of well we got them saved we're done that's it we have no more responsibility to them can i tell you hey listen you win someone to christ uh, you didn't get rid of a prayer you took on a project It is now your responsibility, your prerogative to help them grow as a believer and as a Christian. You know why? Because he brought us out that he might bring us in. What is the land that he's speaking of? Well, it's the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan, while a lot of people liken it to heaven, I don't get mad at people for doing that. Uh, if you want to do that, that's fine. But uh, the land of Canaan is not a picture of heaven in the Bible. Uh, you say, why do you believe that, preacher? Well, because there's giants there and enemies and foes. And I would assume mosquitoes. And I'm going to trust there ain't no mosquitoes in heaven. I ain't got Bible on that, but I feel firm about it. <laughs> Uh, and, And so the land of Canaan had all these problems and it had to be conquered, it had to be taken. And so Canaan, rather than being a picture of heaven, here's what's a picture of the life that God had for them. The life that God desired for them. The life that He wanted them to live. And in our uh, era, in our dispensation, what does that picture? It pictures the life of victory in Christ Jesus. Now that does not mean sinless perfection, but it does mean living life as God intended for us to live it. Letting Christ have the jurisdiction, the governance of our life. Letting the Spirit of God fill us and use us. Letting the life of Christ live through us. The life that God, I'm not talking about status quo. I'm not talking about barely it. I'm not talking about Egypt at your back. I'm talking about the land of Canaan this morning. That's why God saved you. He didn't save you just to get you out of hell. He saved you to get you in something better. I want you to notice three thoughts with me this morning that I think are worth considering. Notice number one, there's a word said about where he brought us out. Verse 21. This is how you begin your story. You say, then shalt thou say unto thy son, we were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. Boy, I tell you, that's a succinct description. That's a little summary for 430 years of suffering that the children of Israel went through. Uh, You know, when we think about where we were and what we were when God saves us, we're not that much different than the children of Israel were when they were in Egypt. In fact, there's an entire parallel between God redeeming them out of Egypt and God saving you from your lost condition. You say, Preacher, how was it similar? Well, I thought about the land of, of Egypt, where they were. You know, Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. It's associated with the world system and the world's treasures and pleasures and the world's desires. But beyond that, listen to how God describes the Israelites' time in Egypt. In Genesis fifteen thirteen, God says prophetically unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Those three little statements sum up where you and I were before God saved us. I would say, number one, the, Egypt was a land of spiritual darkness. When the Bible says that they would sojourn in a land uh, that they would be strangers in. Now listen, any place that ain't your home is a place you're a stranger in. But when it says they would be strangers in that land, what it means is that it would be a place where their God would not be known, where their God would not be worshipped. It would be a place where the Bible would not be upheld. Let me tell you something, when you got born again, God saved you out of just as much spiritual darkness as lived in the ancient land of Egypt. Egypt was a place of idols, false god, occult, dark powers. We're told that whenever Moses would perform assign a miracle before them that for many of the miracles, Satan would energize the false prophets and uh, and and the, the sorcerers of Egypt to be able to answer with something that parroted it, that emulated it. And by the way, that, the devil always does that. The devil's not trying to sell you on something as radically different from God as he possibly can. He's trying to sell you on something that you believe to be a substitute of God. That's why a lot of people are dying and going to hell on the religious bus. But the devil is... He's let them think that their religion's going to get them to heaven. He's selling them a false lie, a false assurance. Uh, but we find that Egypt was a place where Satan held dominion and sway. It was a place of darkness where God was not regarded and where God was not known. And what a picture of the lost person. Listen, he may have some vague comprehension that there's a God in heaven. He may have even been raised in Bible-believing churches where that he has an academic head knowledge, but in his heart dwells the same darkness. That lives in every other sinner. The sinner's problem is not that he doesn't. Just that he doesn't come to God. It's that in and of himself he can't get to God. And he doesn't know where to see God. Or where to find God. You say well preacher how does anybody ever get saved? Through the light of the word of God. That's how they get saved. When you got saved, you were in a place of spiritual darkness. You may have thought you were religious. You may have thought that you were a good person. You may have thought that you were moral. And none of that carries any currency with God. None of it is interesting to Him. None of it has any value with Him. The only thing that matters is whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Him, then you're still dwelling in darkness. i got news for you, though. He's the light of the world. And He can change your life. He can translate you from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His Dear son, it was a land of spiritual darkness. And then this is what God said. Not only would they uh, be in a land, a stranger in a land that is not theirs, but the Bible says that they would serve them. Uh, For the vast majority of the Israelites' time in Egypt, it was a time of servitude. They were slaves. They weren't allowed to do what they would have desired to do. They did not work for their own uh, benefit and for their own enrichment. I'm sure that early on, they probably believed that they did. But sooner or later, at some point, the taskmaster broke out the whip. You know, sooner or later, if a taskmaster can drive you and motivate you, he'll put the whip away. But sooner or later, you want to know whether you're a slave or not is whether that whip comes out. And sooner or later, the whip came out. Sooner or later, they began to whip the children of Israel. They began to enslave them. They began to imprison them. They began to use them as their chattel, as their workforce. And they lived a life for hundreds of years of slavery. Let me say, not only was it a land of spiritual darkness, but it was a land of slavery. Uh, They at one time probably thought they were free, but they just woke up one day and realized they had never been free the whole time. You know, that's exactly what happened when you got born again. Uh, you thought you were free for a time. The devil hid the whip for a little while because you were doing as he pleased. Then all of a sudden, the devil hates people with, with disparate opinions of his. Uh, there's a lot of people in the world like that today too. It scares them when somebody has a different concept or perspective than they do. Well, well, the devil's like that. And all of a sudden, when you started to ask questions about this life of sin, the whip came out. And here's what you learned. You learned you never were free at any point. You learned you didn't live for yourself. You lived for him. You say, now, preacher, I got some pleasure out of it. Yeah, but it doesn't outweigh the heartache and pain that comes from it. And even once it started to be painful to live in sin, you couldn't quit. You thought you could, but you couldn't. You know why? Because you're not free. Uh, you're You're not at liberty. It was a land of slavery. And a lost person, they say, well, I'm just living my life doing what I want. Isn't it funny how they're all doing the same things? Now, wouldn't you imagine this funny old world that if everybody's just doing what they wanted, occasionally somebody would do something different. But instead, they just all do the same thing. Now, why is that? Well, they're not free. They believe they're free. But if the Son has made you free, you're free indeed. Do you know I live Christian... And I know Christians live any old way too. <laughs> I know Christians that live all sorts of ways. I know Christians that live for the Lord and let God get glory out of their life. I know Christians that live for the devil and allow uh, hell and destruction to reign supreme over them. And I know Christians that just live in milk toast, boring, old, mediocre status quo. I know all kinds of Christians that live all kinds of different ways. You know why? Because... The the Son hath made them free. Now they can actually choose. They can choose to live for God if they want to. They can choose to not let their life be a disgrace. But they have real freedom. But at the end of the day, all the devil's crowd has no real freedom. It was a land of slavery. But then notice this, it was a land of suffering. The Bible says they shall afflict them 400 years. In other words, they did not live a life of pleasure and enjoyment and leisure. They lived a life of suffering, heartache and pain. Can I ask you something? How long is the devil going to have to ride you into the dirt before you're going to realize that he ain't your friend? How long is sin going to have to devastate you before you're going to realize it ain't in your interest? It's funny, you see lives that are broken, and brokenness itself has a certain allure in some people's lives. I don't know why it is. I don't know if it gives them a sense of self-worth, or they feel like it adds a romanticism to their life. Whatever the reason is, it seems like there are some folks that will stay in their brokenness, even when hope is offered to them, irrespective of, the, of, of their opportunity to get out of it. And I often scratch my head and think to myself, what is sin doing for you? I'm just going to ask that again. No, 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 I like that it got real quiet there. I'm serious. What is sin doing for you? How is it helping you? How is it? Does it give you peace? Does it give you contentment? Do you ever? Have you reached a place where you say, well, you know, I've sinned enough. I'm good. I'm all right. I can tell you this. I came to Jesus and I got a drink and I ain't looking for nothing else. He satisfied me. Now you say, but preacher, don't you love the Lord and want to love Him more? Oh, yeah. But you know, funny thing about it, I keep drinking from His fountain and I don't ever get no thirstier. I just get more satisfied all the time. I'm not looking for anything else. What's sin doing for you? How's it helping you? How's it encouraging you? How is it uplifting you? How is it delivering you? No, I'll tell you what it brings about. It brings about pain and suffering. Man, I could take you down. I could take you down and show you people that have drank themselves to death, lying on a bed, getting ready to expire. Uh, Often many of them meeting a God and they don't know what kind of condition they're in with Him. And that's where sin will take you. I could show you the addict's den. I could go, I I could drag you, I could take you to some places uh, in town where you'd find people laying out under a bridge somewhere with a needle in their arm. That's what sin will do to you. I I could take you to a place in the hospital people are wasting away from uh, diseases of of the physical nature, diseases that they have incurred uh, through intimate relationships outside the bonds of marriage. I could show you that. I could show you what sin will do to you. And I can also show you what the Lord will do to you. Because there's people here today that would have been there had it not been for the grace of God. There's people today that were on their way there, but the grace of God intervened. What are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying, what are you getting out of? The land of Egypt, it was a land of suffering. But then, I like what it says in verse 21. We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. We didn't belong to us. We thought we were running our life, but we just belonged to Pharaoh. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt. With a mighty hand. So as you're telling your young people this, as you're telling a broken world this, as we're giving testimony, even in the house of God, the first thing we mention is where He brought us out. Number two, we need to say something about when He brought us out. It says, don't just tell them what you used to be. Tell them how you became something different. And listen to the way that it's described. There's three things mentioned here. The first thing is this. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I'd say it this way. Number one, this morning, His plan brought us out. Say, preacher, how'd you go from being lost on your way to hell to standing up, preaching the Word of God, preaching the Gospel, happy family, wonderful church family? How'd you get from there to there? Well, it was all by the plan of God. It was by His faithfulness. It was by the faithfulness of His providence. It's not because I got myself out of this. It's because He made a way that I could get out of this. Now, let me be abundantly clear. I had to make the choice to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to make that choice for me. He wasn't going to force that choice on me. Uh, But He made the way. I didn't make the way. I didn't do enough good works that I earned my way into heaven. I couldn't do enough good works to try to earn my way into heaven. And even if I could, that ain't going to cancel out all the bad things that I've done. I was broken, helpless. I was sold on the auction block of sin, a bondman in Egypt with no hope and help and way to rescue myself. And then God come along and He had a plan where I had no plan. I love the usage of the term hand here. It denotes agency of will and of control and that's what God did. Hey listen, Calvary, you know, I don't have nothing to do with what happened on Calvary except I put him there. It was my sins put him there. Uh, but, but I, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't plan it. I didn't carry it out. I didn't orchestrate it. Uh, all of that was done by the plan and power of God. And the gospel that is presented and is offered to you and I today, it is holy of God's design and desire. It is birthed in the eternal heart of God. It is not the invention or ingenuity of mankind. That's why the book of Revelation calls him the land slain from the foundation of the world. It's funny, the, the devil wants to come around and tell you that this whole Bible thing was come up with a few hundred years ago by people regurgitating ancient uh, myths from places like Egypt and Assyria. Uh, one, that don't even hold uh, water in a historical sense. You can go back and we can talk... About about it if you want to, but you want to know what God says about it? Uh, hey, before you ever were a sinner, he already had pledged and promised to be a savior. Uh, before you were ever lost, he was already the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Hey, it was his plan that brought us out. You're saved here, not because you got yourself out, but because he got you out. His plan brought us out. And then he says this, the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore upon Egypt. Now, what was it that permitted or allowed the children of Israel to come out of Egypt? How did God break the power of not just Pharaoh, but of the devil himself over that land? Because remember, the ancient Egyptians believed Pharaoh to be an embodiment of God, but rather what we find if we study the Word of God, is Pharaoh was being wielded by the devil himself. He is in many ways a type of the coming antichrist. He was the governor of the world system wielding dark occult power. And there's no question that the power that those sorcerers exhibited was real. It may have not, it may have not been divine, but it was a power that was real. And how did God break the power of the devil? Well, he broke the power of the devil through his own power, which is stronger. What happened? Well, God would, would display miracles through the hand of Moses. Some of them they could replicate. Some of them they couldn't. You know, it's interesting. They, they had no ability to bring forth the ly, uh, lice from sand. Uh, they could turn water to blood. They could call frogs forth. They could do a lot of things. But they couldn't turn li- sand into lice. You say, why is that, preacher? Because the devil can't generate life. He has no ability to. Hey, you know, life was in Christ. It's in Him. The devil has no jur- He, Hey, listen, for a time he had jurisdiction over death till the Lord Jesus went into his domain and took his crown from him. Uh, but he's never had jurisdiction over life. And so he couldn't even, even that sentient. Animal life he couldn't produce. And what was happening there? Well, God was proving to the children of Israel and to the Egyptians his supremacy over their pagan gods. I don't have time to go through all of it, but you know, you go back through. Hey, they worshipped a god of the suns. You know what God did? He turned the land to darkness. They they worshipped a god of, of bugs, of beetles. So you know what God did? He called forth plagues of locusts. They worshipped their cattle. That was their main driving economic force. You know what God did? He struck them all with a with a moraine, with a disease upon them. On and on. You could, they, Hey, they worshipped the Nile River as the source of life. So you know what He did? He turned it to blood. What's God doing? He's proving His supremacy over the false pagan gods over Amen. Egypt. We could say it this way. His plan brought us out by the faithfulness of His providence. But number two, His power brought us out by faith in His proofs. In other words, He showed up, showed out, and showed us that He is God. And then we responded in faith to that and said, You know, I think He's right. I think He's God. I believe Him. He tells me I'm a sinner. I believe Him. When He says it, He showed me that I'm a sinner. He tells me that Jesus is the Savior. I believe Him because Jesus rose from the dead. By His power, He has delivered us. He's broken the spell that Satan cast upon us. And that's why you're born again today. If you're saved by the grace of God, it's because, hey, your mind, which was once blinded from the light of the glorious gospel by the power of the devil, uh, that those scales have been lifted, that you have been shown the truth and reality of your lost condition, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary to save you, and you responded in faith, you believed that, you accepted that, and you called upon Him to forgive you and save you. You got brought out the same way they got brought out. He showed up and broke the devil's spell over you. And then I would say there's a third thing. He says this, And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore upon Egypt. But then he says this, And upon Pharaoh and upon all his household before our eyes. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that there were ten plagues upon Egypt. And the first nine didn't get it done as far as breaking Pharaoh's will. But there was a final plague that was offered. And that plague was the plague of the death angel. The death angel was to pass, sweep through the land of Egypt, and claim the firstborn of every single family and household in the land of Egypt. This touched not just the common Egyptian, but the Bible tells us every house, even Pharaoh's house, even Pharaoh lost his firstborn with that death angel's plague. But you know, not everybody did lose their son. There were some that escaped that. God gave a prescription for how they could escape this plague and this judgment. That they were to take a lamb and they were to slay that lamb and take its blood and spread it over the lentils of the doorpost. You say, preacher, are you saying the blood of that lamb saved them? No, I'm saying the promise of God saved them. But the way that it was expressed is through that blood that was placed upon it. God said, this is what you do and you'll be safe. A lamb has to die. A price has to be paid. God didn't say, I won't ask for a life. He said, I'll let that lamb's life. I stand in place of your firstborn's life. You take and slay that lamb as your substitute, and I'll see that blood, and I'll know that the death angel has already passed this way. No reason for him to visit. Death has already passed this way and been satisfied because the blood has already been offered. Now, if you if you've owned a Bible for more than ten minutes, you know where I'm going. How did we get out? How did He bring us out? Well, His plan brought us out by the faithfulness of His providence. His power brought us out by the faith in His proofs. But I'd say this, His payment brought us out by the forgiveness of His pardon. How would they come out of Egypt? How would they get out? Well, they got out because a Lamb was slain, blood was applied, and death was satisfied. You know, that's how you got born again too. You remember one day John sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. We're told that it's by faith in His blood that we are given access unto Him. In other words, uh, when we should have died on the cross of Calvary, when the death angel should have passed over us, when we, our account, our debt should have been called up instead, God sent His Son, the the blessed Lamb of God, as of a lamb without spot and without blimp he slew him on the cross of calvary and now his blood is sufficient for all those that will come unto him so you see you got out just like they got out you was where they was i don't know if that's good english don't even google it all right uh isn't it funny we live in a day where people will check the internet to find out about good grammar that's a strange world we're living in you was where they was you got out the way they got out so you know what that means you should be headed where they were headed Look what it says here. We see where he brought us out and when he brought us out. But I want to say a word in closing about why he brought us out. Why did he save us? Was God just sitting up in heaven bored, didn't have nothing else to do? Was it simply that God was lonely and needed someone to talk to? No. Was it that God needed to prove his uh, divine bona fides to you and I? Prove that he was God? No. That wasn't the reason. In fact, there's two reasons. He saved you for his glory and he saved you for your good. What does He expect out of our life? What did He save us for? Well, notice these three verses that close our chapter here. Notice verse 23. He brought us out from thence that He might bring us in to give us the land which He swore unto our fathers. You know, that land was not perfect. That land was, was, it was not without enemies. But you know what that land wasn't? It wasn't Egypt. I'd say it this way. You know why He saved you? He saved you to give you a superior life to the one that you lived before. It is always baffling to me when people get born again. And usually it's not right when they get saved. Usually when they get saved, they're excited, they're on fire for the Lord. But then they get around a bunch of Baptists who get them all backslid. And it's not long before they've just settled right in with the herd. And uh, then it usually doesn't take long. And by the way, you need to remember this. If you let status quo be the rule in your life, uh, what you do in moderation, others will do in excess. Uh, in other words, let me say it this way, particularly to us as parents. And I'm talking about me first of all, but I'm talking about you as well, all of us. Hey, listen, if, if church is small to you, it'll be nothing to your kids. If, if, if the Bible is take it or leave it to you, it'll be leave it to your kids. If prayer is nothing but just a formality to you, it's going to be foolishness to them. What you do in moderation, they will do in excess. And when I think about why God saved us, He didn't just save us so we could maintain a status quo. Or, like so often happens, people will go back and like the children of Israel longed to do, they wanted the flesh pots of Egypt again. They wanted to go back to that old life. You know, what he's telling them is this. The reason we live the way that we live is because God done saved us out of how we used to be living. Why did God save you if not to change your life? I got news for you. God's doing more than just offering uh, bus passes to heaven. He's saving people that He might transform them and give you a better life than the life you live uh you see families who are in the thralls of generational bondage of sin you say what do you mean by that preacher well daddy's a drunkard so the kids become drunkards and their kids become drunkards and we've seen the story a thousand times addiction uh, the you know lewdness and sexual sins you'll see it uh, just as often you'll see it with with all sorts of things sometimes it can be lust and, and avarice of money and things of that sort but a generational you know the only thing i've ever seen break the chains of that generational bondage is the gospel of jesus christ uh, now listen, I can't, I can't point you to no one, uh, who, whose daddy was a bootlegger, but the Masons got him out of it. I'm sorry. I can't point you to no one whose, whose parent was an addict. They was born addicted to drugs, but don't worry, their, their favored political party got him out of it. But now I can point you to some folks whose parents was bootleggers and the gospel got them out of it. The gospel changed their life, saved, them, transformed them. Why is that? Well, that's what the gospel's designed to do is to give you a life worth living. If you're lost today, you've not even glimpsed what life really is. I'm serious, man. I ain't no kind of wild-eyed fanatic. Look at me. Look at me. My pupils ain't dilating. I'm telling you, there's a better life than the one the devil offers. He come to give you life and more abundant. He saved us to give us a better life. Why would we go back to that old broken life? That we is living in to give us a superior life. Then look at verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. Boy, some of us need to underscore that in our heart and in our brain and in our soul for our good always that He might preserve us alive as it is at this day. I'd say number two, He brought us out to give us a scriptural life. He brought us out so that we would live in accordance with this book. You say, oh, preacher, he just wants followers. No, here's what he says, for your good always. Oh, man, imagine, imagine what God could do with the life of one of these young people that learned that phrase, for your good always, at a young age. Some of y'all in your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, you learned it, but you grieve that it took you so long to learn it. You wish you could go back and be their age and learn that what's in this book is for your good always. That He might preserve you. You want a life worth living? This book will tell you how to live it. This book will give you the key to it. And God saved us not so that we could bend and bow before a world philosophy that hates God and hates His book. Uh, I'm deeply grieved by so many Christians that are marching in lockstep with the world's philosophies. What the world loves, they love. What the world hates, they hate. Uh, How the world sees things is how they see things. God saved you out of that. I understand a lost person feeling that way. They're an empty vessel for the world to pour themselves into. Son, when you got born again, the Holy Ghost took up residence in you. You ought to have something more about you than just being an empty suit for the world to fill. We ought to live a scriptural life. Our world and our perspective ought to be defined by this Bible. What are you if you're not biblical? Answer it. What are you if you're not biblical? You're something else if you're not biblical. What are you? We all call ourselves Bible-believing Christians. But then when issues arise and and come about and the Bible is spoken on those things, all of a sudden we want to have a conversation. Word of God has already had the conversation. If you're not biblical, what are you? You're something else if you're not biblical. So what is it? Who's pulling your strings? Who's shaping your mind if it's not the Word of God? Somebody is. So who is it? Hey, listen, He, he saved us. He brought us out to give us a scriptural life. Then I like verse 25. It says this, It shall be our righteousness. What shall be? Well, if we live biblically... It's going to produce righteousness in our life. It shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He hath commanded us. Why did He bring us out? Well, He brought us out to give us a superior life, a better life than what sin and the devil and the world could have give us, to give us a scriptural life that we might be people of the book, shaped and defined and molded and, 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 and produced by the Word of God. But then I would say this, to give us a sanctified life. Says if we live that way. You know what it's going to do? It's going to produce righteousness in us. Now, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness is right living, motivated, energized, and instigated by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's what righteousness is. It is rightness, living in a right way. Uh, in other words, it's not wrongness. It's righteousness. And God saved you that you might be a vessel meet for the master's use, a living testimony of the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the grace of God. He saved you that men might look at you and see the power of God. That they might know that at one time, hey, you were a bondman, (laughs) belonged, bought and sold. Your title deed was owned by Pharaoh and your home was the land of Egypt. But now everything's changed. Why? Because he brought you out. And now the way you live and the way you behave is a walking testimony to His power that He can transform and change you. You saw, a preacher, He couldn't change me. Let me say, number one, that's naive. There, there are, I don't care how big and bad you think you are, there's people bigger and badder than you that God has saved and transformed. Preacher, you don't know what I've been through. I don't have to know what you've been through. I know what He's been through. Hey, listen, I, 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 I don't know what kind of sinner you are, but I know what kind of savior He is. I know what He's done. I know the price He's paid. And as such, can I tell you this? If you're still in Egypt, you ain't got to stay there. You ain't got to stay there. Right now, the flesh, the devil, and the world are raising that whip above you, trying to keep you from running. But I got news for you. Hey, let me just send a little word down the line. Let me shine a little light in your darkness. There is hope and help through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can come to Him and be born Again, maybe uh, you are considering how he can bring you out. Well, he can bring you out the same way. His plan is the gospel, his power is his grace, and his payment is the blood of jesus christ if you 'll believe in him and trust in him, he can save you, but maybe you 're one of these that 's got out of the land of egypt, but you 're still hanging around the neighborhood of the wilderness you 've never you, you 're fully out, but you ain 't fully in so what do you mean preacher well you 're saved you 're on your way to heaven nothing 's going to change that but you ain't really consecrated your life to Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, He saved you for more than what you're doing. He saved you more for more than the life that you're living. He brought us out, not just so we could say, well, glory, I'm out, but that He might bring us in and give us a new life in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together this morning. Karen's going to play the invitation for us. The altar's open. Here's what I want first and foremost. There might be somebody whose heart is burdened for a loved one. And there could be two reasons. And there could be a lot of reasons. You come for anything that God's dealing with you about this morning. But there's two preeminent reasons if we think about our message. One, you might have a loved one still in Egypt in the thralls and throes and darkness of sin. And you say, Preacher, I don't know how they're ever going to get out. Well, Jesus can get them out. He can do it. I can't, you can't, but He can. will not you come lift their name up to the throne of grace?